0: Hello, funky listeners, and welcome to another episode of Funk Radio. This is your host, Kyle.
1: And this is your host, Peter. And you are the listeners. Hello, listeners. Hello. Hi.
0: You're always the listeners, never the viewers. You can never see us.
1: (laughs) Except that one video episode we did, like, seven years ago.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh, was it that long? Don't make me feel old.
1: Something like that.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. That uh, That was a trip. Um... Literally, because you took a trip to see me. Very true. And I will be repeating that fairly soon. That is true. Um, Yay. So, um, enough about my personal life, I guess. Um, today, we are going to be talking about other things that are lost. Um, such as lost musical recordings. Um, Yay. If I remember correctly, this was an idea you had fairly recently. What, uh, what inspired it initially.
1: So this is another example of one that I wrote like a couple of years ago and I found it just scrolling through our document looking for old stuff we'd written down a while back. Um but part of the reason like it, I find it interesting regardless but I there's been a couple of things that have come up recently um about lost media that have kind of rekindled like putting it back in the forefront of my mind basically. Mm-hmm. Um and so it was kind of fortuitous that I found it in the document because I was like, "Oh, you know, we can definitely you know talk about this, um, and it's a pretty interesting topic. I think we both agree. Um, we will uh, we'll try to keep it pretty succinct to your listeners, but it's um, it's a it's an interesting concept, and it's not really something we've really directly discussed before.
0: Yeah, no, it's definitely really interesting. Um, we'll get into it more in depth, but there's a lot of aspects about this that i think would actually make good future subject matter as well Mm -hmm. so i guess to kind of jump in initially like we're talking about basically lost musical recordings in various formats but i guess we should probably define what is lost media first and foremost and it's essentially a term used to describe any media that is known to exist at some point in time but it's locate physical location or uh, reproducibility has been lost to time so basically like any any known copies of that material whether they're the original master recordings whether they're you know recordings for sale have been lost due to just general degradation of media over time so this mostly applies to like older music obviously everything post internet really doesn't you know I guess we can get into that later, but it doesn't really count as much because it's all yeah. been digitally sort of archived.
1: Yeah, and I, I was trying to think of, like, when would be, like, within reason, what would be, like, the cutoff of when this would not really be a thing anymore? I would say probably anything after, like, I would say probably, like, starting in the 50s or so. Yeah. Or even the 60s. Like, I feel like at that point, the music industry was more solidified and knowing what they were doing and, like, knew, hey, we should keep all recordings of all these artists, you know, even before they were famous necessarily, because this could, you know, be worth something someday.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, you actually had a, a sort of fairly recent uh, newsworthy example to kind of talk about what this is as a, as a yeah. subject.
1: Yeah. So um, I just want to mention really quick. So one of, one of, guy like, I had mentioned that there were a couple of things that happened recently. Um, one of them was, uh, a video on YouTube just came out um, within the last couple of weeks. I don't, I guess I, f- I forget what the exact date was. It might have been last month, but I, if nothing else, it was this month in June when we're recording this. I guess it'll be after that when we release it. But um, <clears throat> a really good example of Lost in Media, um, I guess for decades there was this notorious episode of Sesame Street um, that aired in 1976. And I guess what happened is that they. Uh, they brought on the actress who originally played the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz, you know, whenever... God, what year was that? That was a long-ass time ago.
0: 1939.
1: Yeah. Anyway, they brought her on and to, like, reprise her role as that character, essentially, on Sesame Street. <laughs> That's and,
0: absolutely horrifying sounding.
1: <laughs> well, and that actually kind of became the problem. And so they had this episode where, like, the witch was causing all these problems. And apparently, um, after the episode aired... In '76, um, a lot of parents wrote in, being like, "This scared the shit out of my kids." Basically, um, and because of all that backlash, um, Sesame Workshop um, intentionally locked away that episode for like 50 years. You know, even even in more recent years, when there's been more prominent, you know, uh, movements of people saying like, "Hey, you know, let's release this to the public." I mean, it's been you know five decades. Let's. You know, it, it should be reasonable at this point to release it. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently they were still like really locked up about it and they were not planning to. Um, there was a really good video about it. Um, I think it's on YouTube. It's like the holy grail of, of Sesame Street was found or something. Um, but they essentially what happened is that, you know, Sesame Workshop was still going to be like, no, we're not releasing this. But somehow someone anonymously, I guess, behind the scenes was able to get a copy of it. Uh, from the vault and actually released it online to the public um, recently. And this was literally like, this happened a couple weeks ago after like 50 years of people not necessarily questioning whether it existed, but like most details of it were not known because at the time in the seventies, people weren't necessarily doing like home recording on VHS or anything like that yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there were no known recordings of it, like within the public spectrum. Um. So it it was this very much like Holy Grail sort of thing that finally um, became unlost, I suppose or found, I guess is the right word. Um, but um, so that that's a pretty good explanatory way of showing like something that was known to exist, but no one has seen or heard of it mm-hmm. in a really long time. Um, in, in that specific case, and in actually in in under the umbrella term of lost media, it does include cases like that where, it is known that a copy does exist, but it's just not publicly available.
0: Yeah, yeah. That that could be an interesting spin-off topic though, like recording like music recordings that were never released because the studio thought it was too risque or whatever. Yeah. Um, so they locked them away. That's that's an interesting concept. Um yeah. I bet Elmo was definitely the one that leaked it. I could see him doing that. <laughs> so yeah, that's actually a really good example, like you said, of kind of like lost media that uh, was sort of preserved, sort of unintentionally preserved by the studio themselves and then was re-released to the public. Um, that actually leads me into, I guess, the next topic is basically, in order to talk about lost media and how it gets lost, we kind of have to talk about like how media is preserved in general. Now, yeah. I won't go super in-depth into this because it's actually kind of complex and probably could also make, it, make its own episode, but
1: yeah, that's actually a thing I've wanted to do like in its own episode at some point.
0: Yeah, no, it's actually really interesting. The more I, I got in, in depth with it of like how things are preserved, how curators and archivists do that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, to quickly explain why preservation exists. Basically, all sound recordings are, through the fact that they're in a physical media, are at risk of sort of de- degrading, disintegrating, breaking down over time. You know, all things are made of atoms, I guess, except for even digital stuff. Uh, I almost said... Digital digital stuff is not made of (laughs) (laughs) atoms. Digital stuff is made of wizard juice. Uh, Um, So before digital technology, uh, record companies would create things like reels uh, for the albums by recording different sections of songs and then splicing them together using tape um often these were referred to as like master recordings that came straight out of the recording studios before they were sort of re i don't want to say re-edited but remastered essentially for uh mass production to the public um and so some of these original tapes are still around they're archived they're in places like the library of congress the smithsonian museum uh this especially applies to a lot of older recordings, like pre, really pre, like 1930s or 40s, right. uh, which we'll get into in a sec. But to keep these recordings safe, uh, whether they're the original masters or re-recordings, physical copies of them on, on formats such as vinyl, cassettes, or CDs are kept in moisture-controlled and temperature-controlled climates by archivists to basically give them the best chance to survive long, long decades of time. Yeah. One article that I found that I, I heavily sourced for this section is was from Vox, so I'm actually going to quote a little bit of um, the article here. Uh, they quoted this one archivist uh, named Jeff Pace, uh, and he said, quote, preserving found archives is all about redundancy. Quote, right now, with digital, we have everything. We can embed metadata in the recording so that when you go through a system and search, we can add keywords to albums to help researchers, and we can back up our recordings in physical and digital formats. So he's kind of reiterating what I said before, where although archivists in modern times are basically digitally reproducing, all of these old recordings they're still intent on having the physical backups yeah so i guess one really good example of of the way that this is used is actually regarding music from the early early 20th century we're talking like 1901 to 1925 basically stuff that i think in modern times would be considered public domain i don't know i think the public domain goes to like 1922
1: or something Um, something like that yeah
0: yeah, I know we've kind of talked about that before. Um, and basically, the Library of Congress, they have a uh, sort of program called the National Jukebox, which is an online digitization of over 10,000 historical sound recordings from 1901 to 1925 that anyone can listen to. Um, the uh, This guy, Jeff Barton, said, "quote "...all of these recordings were recorded without microphones, and some things are recorded better than others." so this whole era of recordings that was done basically before modern even modern recording equipment existed or was invented mm-hmm. um the this whole era was lost to basically everyone except for the original people that collected these 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 curators that would basically hunt down these recordings all over america hmm. um and now due to this this Uh, Library of Congress team uh, these physical recordings are in you know proper storage and there's a team of highly qualified sound engineers that are working to basically digitally back up these recordings and preserve them within the Library of Congress to basically keep them around for hopefully the next 500 years I don't know what their timeline is Um, and so yeah basically um, in in creating this project, not only did they basically gather all these pl- recordings in one central location, they by digitally backing them up, they basically made them freely available to anyone for anyone to listen to, to kind of help preserve the music created in the basically the early 20th century when recording equipment was first invented. Um, yeah,
1: and I mean I'm sure that for every for everything that they have preserved, there's got to be so much more that. Yeah, either exactly. just no one even knows they, about or exactly because they, they know, know they do have. know about, but like no one knows where like the original recordings are.
0: Exactly. I mean, yeah, they are only, only able to get their hands on, on what people know ex- is out there and exists. Right. So hopefully there'll be yeah. enough antique roadshows to help discover new, uh,
1: new music. <laughs> um, um, that could be our new series, antique funk show. <laughs> there you go. I don't know. Um, I guess that's an interesting kind of aspect of this whole thing. I I, I guess it's hard. You can't really talk about lost media without talking about preservation because preservation is kind of the solution, I guess, to lost media.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's like you kind of have to talk about like why music is even preserved in the first place to know why how it gets lost. Speaking of how it gets lost, um, I'm sure there's plenty of examples throughout history of media getting lost. But one uh, fairly recent event that I found in doing research um, that was particularly devastating, I guess, to the music industry was a fire that broke out in 2008 at Universal Studios um, that apparently ripped through the back lot of Universal Studios Hollywood back in 2008, like 14 years ago. And in the back lot, they were storing uh, master recordings of just Tons and tons and tons of artists. Now oh, wow. I'll get into I'll get into why they were even back there in the first place, but it said that the fire destroyed anywhere from 120 to 175 thousand master recordings, Holy crap. Uh, as re- as reported by the New York Times, which is <laughs> a hell of a lot of music. Yeah. Um, and so the way that this all sort of transpired, not to get into the legalese of it, but there, there was a company called Universal Music Group that was part of nbc in 2004 nbc which was owned by general electric don't ask me why merged with the french media company vivendi universal thus creating nbc universal which is the parent company of nbc news this the article that was reporting this was nbc news that's why Um, Uh and so universal music group wasn't a part of that merger deal and so it wasn't actually a part of nbc universal by the time of the fire However, NBC Universal was leasing storage space to Universal Music on their lots in two thousand eight, including the uh, warehouse where the
1: site was burned. So it was literally they were literally just like paying for storage there. It wasn't even exactly. like their own. It was basically huh? like
0: storage wars but for basically hundreds of thousands <laughs> of master recordings of, of musicians. Good so Lord. Due to this uh, this fire, in 2009, Universal Music actually uh, sued for negligence against NBC Universal, and the suit was settled for a quote undisclosed terms in 2013. Um, Got the thing with ch- like that
1: though is like it's how do you put a price on? I mean, I'm sure they did because they are these huge corporations, but like yeah, undisclosed- to lose that many master recordings, like that's kind of how do you put a dollar figure on that?
0: undisclosed terms yeah that's pretty fishy it's probably like you know it was so it was a large enough amount of money that they don't want to you know make it public
1: um, yeah
0: what i'm curious about and i didn't really find anything about this is like how the artists themselves reacted to this because
1: i'd be pissed um well a question i have is like do they really only have did they not have any kind of backup masters of any of this stuff like, that, is there literally only one master of like you know basically that song?
0: Basically, the the logic of it being the master is it's it is the original recording. Anything anything duplicated is no longer considered a master.
1: It's I think yeah, you're A right.
0: duplicate yeah. or a remaster, uh, which is why them preserving putting all of them in one spot probably maybe wasn't a good idea.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Jeez. Um, I guess this is an you know as it relates to lost media. I guess this is an interesting example of it's it's factually known what happened to all these lost media examples mm-hmm. but also these are this is a case of they will not be recovered because they burned yeah <laughs> you know
0: yeah it's ba- and that and not to get too in depth in it but yeah that's that kind of goes back to you know depending on on what format they end up finding that media in whether it's you know a record pressing whether it's the original masters on tape you know it can make a big difference As far as quality, Um, yeah, and the ability to sort of back it up from you know the original source, so to speak. But yeah, no, that was a pretty tragic event. It was like the basically the burning of Alexandria for for modern music.
1: Well, I was gonna say too, like you in so many cases, like in the eighteen hundreds, even the nineteen hundreds, early at least you know early years. Like pretty much anything you can think of, like at some point that place burned. Like it was just so fucking common. Mm -hmm. But like for that to happen in 2008, that just seems so far removed from what you would expect. Yeah. Especially for something that was holding that many like valuable one of a kind resources, you know. Yeah,
0: I think that's probably why Universal Music went after NBC because they were like. But at the same time, it's like you guys releasing the space from them. You should, you should have, you know.
1: Right. What's I mean, it word? comes with certain like liability agreements and all that. Exactly, so. exactly.
0: But yeah, no, that was a uh, that was just like I said. Well, I'm sure there's many other stories of thing of instances like this, but this one was fairly recent. So,
1: yeah. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Peter. Do you know what a website is? No. It's a thing on the internet, and you can go there, and it's fun. Is that where
0: I can find things to do? Yes, at- you can
1: find things to do. There, uh, getyourfunk.com is a website for funk radio, and there, are, you can find our, our episodes there, and you can listen to them, and you can download them, and we have a tip jar. Do you like money, Kyle?
0: I love money.
1: Well, people will give us money there at getyourfunk.com. Yay! <laughs> Do you have a favorite episode of funk radio?
0: I like the one about butts.
1: Well... At getyourfunk.com, you can use the search bar and type in butts, and it'll pull up our episode that we did a while back about butts. Yay! And now back to our previously scheduled content. So I guess the flip side of that coin is that, you know, in most, I would say in most, if at least many cases of lost media, the the location of the original source is not known, not necessarily. Um, Like we said, there's a lot of cases where, like, we know that a corporation is withholding it from the public, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, But in a lot of cases, nobody had any idea, has any idea where that stuff is. And uh, actually, I I didn't write anything down about this in particular, but I know in some cases I've read that, like, uh, in more obscure cases, like, people kind of don't agree on whether it even existed in the first place. So... You know, it, it get it kinda gets to that point. So there's a big there's this is big spectrum, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um in terms of stuff that, you know, probably existed or did exist, but you know, we don't know what happened to it necessarily. I assume you've never um heard of the rock band Halix um from Disneyland in the nineteen eighties, Kyle. No it's pretty obscure. Um so I, I watched a, like a full documentary about this on YouTube I don't know, a while ago. But I, they, essentially, they were like a space rock band that Disneyland created to kind of like uh, draw more um, of a crowd of like young people or like teenagers into the park <laughs> in the 80s. And it was very much playing off like the popularity of Star Wars at the time. Um, so you kind of had like the knockoff Wookiee character. Um, you, I think you had like a robot character in the band. It was very, it's really bizarre, um, but it's also kind of interesting. Uh, anyway there's a whole history about that i won't get into the whole thing but basically so this band part of what disney was trying to do was also to kind of spread the popularity of it was to actually release like records or cds or whatever from this band Halix. they were under walt disney records at the time that they were starting to like plan out you know are their record release and all that i one website um imagine nerding.com, uh, said, quote, due to various changes with their recording company, Helix was eventually dropped from the label before their first recording could be released. And so it, it is said that, um, it's not entirely clear whether that, uh, that debut album of theirs was only planned or whether they actually like completed it and didn't release it or if there were like, uh, demo recordings. So this is a good example of something like most of the details of it. We just don't know other than like, it may have existed at some point.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's almost like a urban legend type thing.
1: Yeah. Well, in like in cases like this, it there was some meat to the story because like in articles at the time it was saying like oh, you know, this this you know, having an article about the band basically and they're saying like oh, they're also working with Walt Disney Re- Records to produce an album to come in, you know, whatever year, but then it never happened. So at, at that point, it becomes like, okay, we know that they were planning it at least, but we don't know how far they got. Um, so I guess this is, this could be like the opposite of what you were describing of rather than being known and destroyed, it's like, did it ever exist in the first place? Mm-hmm. I also wanted to look at kind of like examples of basically lost music media that was eventually found. And I think there are several cases of that. Um, one that I kind of just picked out of the blue was apparently some um, of the original like recordings of Joni Mitchell. Before she was famous or anything, um, were recently discovered after being lost for more than fifty years. <laughs> um, so I guess uh, a radio DJ in Vancouver, uh, Canada, Barry Bowman, um, at, at the time a- early in his career, I think he was like nineteen years old or so, recorded like some of her first songs. Like I said before, she was famous. It was kind of just like they were having fun, and then and years later, you know, she becomes a, a famous musician and all this. But the tapes were kind of forgotten about. Um, And then around 2018 or so, I guess Bowman's daughter dropped off a box of old tapes and cassettes and stuff they had in the house. And he made the joke of like, oh, I wonder if the lost Joni Mitchell recordings are in there. And then actually, they were in there. And he said, quote, as I said that there, they were. I realized that there were two tapes with a total of nine songs. Hmm. Uh, So as a result of this, he reached out to uh, Verve Records, which I guess apparently was who had the rights to her music. And they basically confirmed that he probably had the first ever recordings of her. And so in 2018, um, he basically presented the tapes to her in L.A. And in 2020, I saw an article that basically said they were releasing these for the first time to the public on like a new box set, basically. So this is kind of a cool example of, you know, a a lot of people probably didn't even realize that these necessarily existed.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's and that's kind of interesting like i'm curious how many artists you know when they were first developing so to speak like you know did these little sort of fun recordings and then didn't think anything of them and either kept them for posterity or maybe didn't and you know they're out there floating somewhere in someone's garage sale
1: yeah and i know that like in certain, I, th- I feel like we've probably talked, th- we might have even done an episode once about, like, demo tapes or something like that, like, years ago. Um, but I know in some cases, even if they weren't never lost necessarily, they just weren't, like, publicly released for a long time. Like, I'm pretty sure they've, like, officially released, like, demo tapes, all of the, of the exist from, like, The Beatles, for example, and other, like, really famous musicians were like basically any recording of theirs ever no matter how shitty it is like it's worth it money yeah uh, exactly release it exactly um but you know, I would say for most artists that's probably not really the case and you know and these weren't even necessarily official demos either it was kind of just like a spur of the moment thing when she was 19 years old yeah so,
0: it's funny that now that you say that because that actually reminds me back in high school I uh they released, like, a, a Nirvana box set that had a bunch of recordings of, like, demo tapes mm. that the lead singer had made and stuff that were, like, really crappy recording quality, but they just <laughs> stuffed, stuffed them all into, like, a three-disc box set, and it sold a, <laughs> it sold a lot, so... Right. Uh, but, yeah, it's... For people that are fans, obviously, of those res- respective artists, you know, even seeing their, you know initial sort of experimental recordings is it's interesting to them because they're a fan, so.
1: Yeah, actually, um... I'm actually pretty positive that we did... T- go, let me go to get your funk.com listeners to fact-check myself. Um Fact my chicks. So, oh yeah, so in 20... Wow, 2016 we did an episode about demo tapes and master recordings. That might have been the episode, um... So the Blondie song, Once I Had a Love, which is, I don't know, might be their most famous song. I don't remember. Um, I think that's an example we talked about in that episode where it was basically like, talk, I think, and, oh, that's what, that's what the episode was about. We were basically comparing the early, like, pre-release demo versions of a song versus, like, the one that actually was released to the public as, like, the official oh. version. Oh, okay. I think that's okay. what that episode was about. But that was an example where I actually like the demo version of that song better than, the like, the one that's more widely known, you know. So, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. It's just kind of an interesting subtopic. Like obviously there's so many tangents from this. We can't go down all of them.
0: Honestly, it. I was thinking that. I'm like this all the stuff in this episode we could break off and make like four more episodes on. Yeah, no kidding. So, I guess that's not a bad thing.
1: Yeah. So, um I also had a couple of like honorable mentions here at the end, I guess as we wrap things up. One was mm-hmm. um not that long ago, only a couple months ago when so when we released that um, that Lego record, that Fabuland Rainbow thing, um, yeah, I don't know if I would necessarily call that lost media because it was still like accessible by the public in terms of like you were able to buy it off eBay or whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But it, I guess that was slightly different in the sense that like there were no known recordings of it online, but we we made it available.
0: Yeah, there was no digital backup of it, so to speak.
1: That, that we know of. So I I don't know if I would necessarily call that lost media, only because, like I said, no, it I was would, accessible say, in some format.
0: I would argue that we were sort of archivers, so to speak, in that we were converting it to a digital format for preservation purposes, yeah. however stupid it was. Right.
1: Yeah. So I, I guess that would be a slightly different case, listeners, of... Yeah, I mean, I, I guess... And we might get into that a little bit more whenever we kind of flesh out that episode about uh, preservation and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, the other, uh, thing I wanted to mention really quick is that, so I'm, I've been finishing up like my own documentary video about a a short lived amusement park, uh, in Oregon in the 1960s and seventies. I won't get into the whole thing, but basically, um, there were connections to some Disney people in that park. Um, and one of them being, um, the one, one of the more prominent, um, disney composers of like the 60s um george bruns so he had a connection to that like miniature park but what's interesting is that he actually recorded a couple of like original musical songs for that theme park Mm -hmm. at least two different ones and like everybody agrees that they existed but like even i've even talked to some like members like family members of the guy who made the park and they were like we don't know where they are either so like it's interesting that like one of the more famous disney composers of the 20th century created these songs but we we don't know where they are um and i'm hoping that when i release this video soon that that might you know open up this thing to a wider audience and maybe we'll be able to like i'm hoping that maybe someone will say oh i actually have like you know the i have a tape in my you know attic or something um, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm i not getting my hopes up too much about that But you never know, you know So I, I think that's sort of an interesting example of
0: Yeah, especially with the internet it's Like six degrees of separation Someone could yeah. see a video and then tell someone else And tell someone else, you never know
1: Yeah, so that's a case where like That is a very, very, very obscure uh, Example of lost media But it's one that like If we found it, that would be awesome, you know Um, mm-hmm, For sure But you never know so it's and, like
0: it's like some uncut version of like it's a small world but better basically
1: yeah so um i just wanted to mention that really quick because that was i think that was the other thing that recently had lost media on my mind as well
0: mm, um that makes sense
1: so and, and that's a case where like if somebody does find it like i want i definitely want to be a part of like helping preserve that and we may even mention it on the show if that does happen um, yeah, I was,
0: yeah, was going to say, if it's, if it's within reason, you can make like a whole separate video of you like flying out and <laughs> listening to it or something.
1: Or I just tell them to mail it to me and I'll figure it
0: out. Too, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, But yeah, no, that's super cool.
1: Yeah. So, um, I, I guess more or less that's all I have. I will say that there are a lot of people online. Like there's like a whole like communities of people who, document the very little bits and pieces that we know about certain various lost recordings or even, you know, lost TV episodes, um, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, so there's a ton of information about that online. Um, obviously as a music podcast, we stuck to music for obvious reasons. Um, but really, I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I don't, don't necessarily think we need to need to come back to this in another episode with more examples, but there's like literally hundreds, if not thousands of examples. Um, Listed online if listeners are interested in, I guess, looking up more.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, we just kind of scratched the surface uh, in terms of just examples of this. There's plenty more out there. Um, I guess if you listeners know of anyone that has lost media or you have any lost media on your person, uh, let us know <laughs> or let Antiques Roadshow know.
1: If you've ever burned down a warehouse full of priceless musical <laughs> recordings, let us know on Facebook. <laughs>
0: Exactly. You'll remain anonymous. Um, so yeah, uh, let us know on our Facebook page at facebook.com/getyourfunk. Uh, as Peter mentioned earlier in the episode, you can listen to this episode and all of our episodes at getyourfunk.com. Uh, we're also on Spotify, Apple, Google, Places, things. Yeah. Uh, people place things. Camera woman. Um, so yeah, this has been your host Kyle.
1: And this has been your lost host, Peter. Thanks for listening. Um, Are you a lost boy? Yes. (laughs) Um, We will talk about something next time, and you will listen next time.
0: Bye, we love you.